The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we work and how we live. My guest today is Kimberly Bryant. Kimberly is an electrical engineer who worked her way up the ladder at some of the largest companies in the U.S., places like DuPont, Pfizer, and Genentech. But something was missing for Kimberly. She considered starting her own company, and along the way, she noticed that there weren't very many Black people in her networking events. And beyond that, there weren't many other Black kids in her daughter's tech-focused after-school programs either. So in 2011, Kimberly made a big shift. She used her retirement funds to start Black Girls Code, a nonprofit that exposes girls from underrepresented communities to technologies like web development, VR, game design, Web3, and even NFTs. This nonprofit has scaled from just a handful of students in 2011 to more than 20,000 young women today. They hope to train 1 million young women by 2040. Black Girls Code is seeing their reach and their revenue scale exponentially, but it hasn't all been smooth sailing. Last year, Kimberly was placed on surprise leave from the nonprofit she founded. I sat down with Kimberly to talk about the challenges she's faced, why she took a risk to start this organization, and what's next for her. We also talked about lessons that nonprofit creators can learn from her experience. To start off, I asked Kimberly how she ended up in engineering in the first place. Here's our conversation. I wasn't really interested in being an engineer when I first started, you know, thinking about what my post-secondary career path would be. I was in math and science advanced coursework in high school, and it was actually my guidance counselors who sort of suggested like, hey, you may want to look into this thing called engineering. I, I actually always thought that I would go to law school, I'd be a lawyer. You know, I had these dreams of being like Perry Mason. Um, the old school pair Mason, not the new one, <laughs> not the revamp one, but that's sort of what I thought my path would be. And, and that really changed because these teachers saw this as a, a fruitful way for me to kind of take advantage of this advanced math and science coursework that I was doing. And it was also just at a time in the mid 80s where there was a, a push to get more diversity in the field of engineering. And so I kind of benefited from the timeliness of when I was going to go to college. And so I just found myself kind of going into a blind, not knowing really what to expect and kind of figuring it out as I went along. I knew I wanted to do something that had a people's focus, you know, like, so I was much different than my brother who was really into gadgets, even my daughter, who's really, you know, a geek by nature. That wasn't my thing. So I wanted to do something that was Uh, more people-centric. I chose civil engineer because I thought like, that sounds like, you know, it would be more people-focused. And in my very first semester of college, you know, I was designing airport runways and and figuring out how highways should be. And I was like, this is not for me. I hate this with a passion. And so I just was clueless. And so I think I really ended up in electrical engineering because I ran into another upper class woman who was also majoring in a double E and 
that kind of resonated with me and having that role model to sort of follow in her footsteps and, and have her sort of mentor and guide me. And so I made the switch over into double E in my second semester and never looked back. And what kind of career conversations did you have growing up? Were you encouraged to pursue things at home? I was definitely uh, from a household that put a heavy emphasis on education. I'm the middle of three kids. My mother really instilled in us this focus on staying in school, getting an education, even though, you know, the three of us were growing up in the inner city where around us, many of our peers and the other boys and girls that we grew up with were going down a much different path, either not focusing in school, getting involved in drugs and we were really focused and, and, and really encouraged by my mother, our teachers, you know, our extended family to stay the course because education was our escape path to a better life. And so all of us have pursued advanced degrees, but I probably was just the, the hardest working and the most stubborn of the three, as the typical middle child will be. <laughs> and so I, I definitely say that a good part of what made me be able to stay the course in engineering and through my career and, and the successes that I have had was that stubbornness as well as that seed that was planted, you know, about really focusing on my education and, and staying on that path. Huh. As a middle child myself, I completely identify with what you're saying. I couldn't agree with you more about the, the need to be stubborn. Yeah. Middle kids, we got to stick together. I like you even more. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I married a middle child. So that was, you know, we were all about the middle child lifestyle. Right. So, so walk, walk us through how uh, Black Girls Code works, what, what kind of programs there are, how many kids you are serving, and then we're going to get into a little bit about how you created it. Black Girls Code is really created to be an after-school immersion program that both exposes girls from underrepresented communities, African-American, Latina, Native American students to computer science and technology by exposing them to these experiences to learn these different novel technologies. Whatever is on the horizon around technology, we take it and we encapsulate it in this curriculum that allows students either in an after-school setting and a very short, small workshop that we're now doing mostly virtually, or in a more immersive summer program that could happen from two to four weeks in the course of the summer from June to August. And even some of our programs are in schools where we actually go into a school and run a, a very small cohort for maybe four to six weeks and really immerse them in more advanced study. Now, this is really done by volunteers, so the staff is still relatively small, but we have these 15 chapters in various cities that pull together these volunteers that may be industry professionals themselves who actually teach the curricula to the students in these after-school programs. We offer these classes and these opportunities for students to participate and you self-select into the classes and, and things that interest you. So that means we maybe have girls that start when they're 11 or 10, et cetera. We start as young as six. Black Girls Code had evolved from its early pilot program. Kimberly first thought that small cohorts working in four to six week programs was the way to go, but that changed pretty quickly. We pivoted quite early from that particular model because we saw that if we could break it down into smaller subsets of learning, you know, not a four to six week cohort necessarily, but 
a one day session where they learn the basics and then they come back in a, again and they learn the intermediate tools and, and another eight hour session, et cetera. We could actually get them more interested in learning and upskilling themselves, if you will. I think the beauty of how Black Girls Code has evolved is that it really creates the foundational framework where these young women can then go in and opt into the areas that they're most interested in. My daughter, for example, was, of course, the earliest participant in Black Girls Code. And now she's really involved in Web3 and as an NFT artist. Now, we didn't teach that. We did teach some basic classes in blockchain several years ago. But a lot of these things she had to learn on her own. So I think what we found is that one of the basics of learning computer science is teaching yourself how to learn. And if we could teach the girls that concept of learning as a passion that you self-teach yourself, they could grow beyond us being able to teach everything from soup to nuts in our classrooms. I would just say the other thing is really the importance of community. Um, one of the things that we found is the reason girls will come to BGC from, you know, age seven to age 13 and tap in as a, and become a volunteer once they go to college is because of the community more so than what they're learning in the classroom. So probably one of the most um, beneficial elements to Black Girls Code and what we do is create this community of support or this safe space, if you will where you can be your accepted as your full self is incredibly powerful. And that's whether they go into technology or not, you know, having this safe space where you are seen, you know, where you are celebrated. It's, it's an extremely important when you come from a marginalized background and community. And that is one of the things I think is perhaps a special sauce, if you will, of Black Girls Code. Well, that is so interesting because as an outsider, you would think the curriculum is the most important part. But what you're talking about is psychological safety of community. You don't really even care whether they stay in coding or not, whether they become engineers. It is about giving them the baseline knowledge and the kind of uh, support system around them to pursue whatever it is they want to pursue. Absolutely. We are this community where these girls are coming, not just to learn Python, they could go to any of the other various organizations to do that. But I think they come and our parents tell them they come because of the community. Talk about how you founded uh, Black Girls Code. I was looking to start a startup company uh, of my own. I was just really trying to tap into the tech industry out of corporate America. And I noticed that there was a, a lack of individuals that looked like me in many of these rooms and networking places that I was, uh, networking activities that I was involved in. But at the same time, my daughter was, you know, be, she was a middle schooler. She was starting to get this interest in tech or computer science and gaming in particular. And I started because we live in the Bay Area just to enroll her in these different after school and weekend activities to learn coding with other kids. And there weren't a lot of other little black girls in the room. And that bothered me because, you know, I, I was in a male dominated field myself as, you know, as an engineer and I'm very protective of my daughter and I did not want her to, you know, I guess suffer some of the, the challenges and indignities that I had faced in being in, you know, male dominated career path myself. And I wanted her to really stay with this passion that she was developing around computer science. And I really pulled a few individuals from her first tee golf 
team together and just pull some folks that I work with together in my network and say, hey, let's do this thing on the weekend with the kids and teach them about coding because I want Kai to have other little girls that look like her in this work and doing this classroom. And we create this six-week pilot program just to see if we could teach them Scratch. You know, it was, we found a free curricula. We started to use that. I was teaching a lot of the, the classes then. We kind of rotated it. And I really used all my 401k. Like I, I had just left Genentech and I had a, a pocket of 401k money. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to use this money to run this pilot program and see if this thing will take off. I think ThoughtWorks Inc. was one of the first companies that reached out to us out of the blue and was like, hey, we like what you're doing over there. How can we help? And they just sort of put us, put us under their wing and helped incubate us for the next six months. And, you know, by the middle of 2012, we really had developed this idea for a chapter-based model using volunteers in other cities and the organization took off. But for that first year and a half, that was straight from my 401k. I did not have any sponsors until I got one. The first one was Google. <laughs> I think they gave us like $10,000. And I thought it was probably, it felt like $10 because it was the first one. And the organization continued to grow from there. And did you have any concerns about tapping into your 401k to do this? I think that would be pretty scary for a well, lot of people. Yes, from the standpoint that I had already left. I had left my job at that point and I was doing, I was a freelance consultant. And so, and I was a single parent as well. So I, and my daughter's in private school. Like, <laughs> I was like my daughter's in private school. I left my good corporate job. I was freelancing. So yeah, it was scary. It, it was scary. Um, but I mean, I, I just felt there was a need because I had been in these rooms and conferences and I wasn't seeing folks that look like at my age. I, mean, I wasn't seeing folks that were doing these things in technology and the question that it wouldn't let me go. Like, why are there not more women in these rooms? Why are there not more people of color in these rooms? I, it haunted me, if you will. That's the best way to say that question haunted me. It was always there. And then I just took a leap of faith and, and thought that if I take the leap, if I took this leap, you know, the help would come. There would be a parachute there. And I just kept going. That's incredible. And the organization grew, but it grew pretty slowly. It was always a small organization. I think it was mm -hmm. less than $2 million in net revenue until 2020. Can you talk about how uh, 2020 yeah, changed? Yeah, I would want to say our, our net revenues grew gradually. So we, we were certainly on a slow growth phase from probably 2012 to maybe, I want to say 2017, 2017. So it's from 2017 to 2020, I would say our net revenues were maybe about four million, but you know, very slow. And March fifteenth, the pandemic hit us over the head, and we went into shelter in place in the Bay Area. But we sent our team in the New York office home as well, packed that office up, and we literally went home and tried to figure out how to survive. Our programs are in person; there were not any virtual programs then. And people canceled locations on us. We didn't know what we were going to be able to do. About the end of April, we were like, okay, this is going to be longer than we think. So let's figure out how to do what we do and use these virtual tools to do it. And we pivoted the organizational model to focus on virtual program delivery and saw our 
student reach grow exponentially. And we really were focusing on building that until June and this summer of reckoning, if you will, and this summer of protest hit. And I, I kid you not, during the weekend where folks first took to the streets to uh, protest you know, the George Floyd murder, we saw donations start to tick in like every second a donation was coming in. I never experienced anything like that in my life. And at that point, we found that, you know, we were raising donations as almost like 100, 150,000 a day for the first week. So what we saw by the end of 2020 is that we were right at the cusp of about 30 million in revenue because not only were individuals giving, you know, corporations started giving. We got a really um, transformational gift from Mackenzie Scott. Um, it was growth like we had never anticipated, never in our wildest dreams that we think it would happen organically. And and it did. And it, it totally turned, changed the course. Uh, and, and I would say even the future of my organization. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, Kimberly talks about her suspension from Black Girls Code. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. By the end of 2020, Black Girls Code had experienced something really incredible, an organic windfall that meant it could grow and scale its mission. And it did get bigger, but all did not get better. In December of 2021, the board at Black Girls Code put Kimberly Bryant on paid suspension. The story goes something like this. Kimberly was locked out of her computer and found out that a select committee of the full board had decided to place her on this paid leave. I asked Kimberly to share what went on in her mind at that point and what she thinks happened to trigger this response. So I I will share as much as I can. We are currently, you know, now in 
pursuing legal matters around this issue. So I can't get into some of the details, but I will say that, you know, prior to, after we came out of 2020 as an organization and came into 2021, um, that year was a bit of a reckoning year for us. And so we really started to work on increasing our hire. So we saw our organization go from about eight individuals in the middle of 2020 to 21 plus individuals at the middle of 2021. So we doubled our organizational staff, but we're all still virtual. So I hired people I never seen in my life, except on a computer screen. We had worked together. Like we, we were struggling with that when we came into 2021, as we were trying to decide where are we gonna go back? Is it gonna be hybrid? Are we gonna stay virtual? And just seeing the impacts on our culture from working across this, you know, this virtual technological platform and not really being able to focus on building our culture and face to face. And it was challenging. So we were having these challenges in terms of building these cultural norms within the organization with this new staff. Uh, we brought in some consultants to help us, you know, because there were issues that we recognized as a leadership team within the culture. We still had gaps even in the senior leadership that we hadn't filled since before 2020. And there were challenges internally. Some individuals within the organization decided to share some of those vocal complaints with members of our board. And that really started this avalanche, if you will, of problems that as a result, you know, ended in my um, suspension at, in December, a couple of days before Christmas. I think in a lot of the media that you see, um, you see things that talk about, well, oh, Kimberly, this, this type of manager and that type of manager. And I want to say that I am a very focused manager that demands results. Like I, that is my leadership style. What I have learned in this process is that, not even just this process, but I think what I have seen is that as a Gen Xer working with a multi-generational staff, the way we were trained to lead and manage a team, it doesn't necessarily make for a fruitful transition in this generation that we are working with. And I think leaders that, especially my age and older, need to be given the training and coaching to work in this new multi-general workforce that we have. That's full stop. However, I also have, in this particular case, experienced some poor board governance, if you will, and some lack of really strong fiduciary responsibility from the board that did not look deeper at some of the issues that we were struggling with that were systemic, to not only just our organization, but organizations in general dealing with these multi-generational staffs. And we're quick to run to judgment and make a really poor decision that I think will have negative impacts for the future of our organization. And so that is what really motivated me uh, to move for getting some external, external sources um, to take it into a legal issue to address it. So are you still suspended today? I am still suspended today, still on paid suspension, still quite unclear about why, and haven't really been told. Wait, you still don't, wait, can we pause it? You still don't know why? No. Do you have any sense that they are going to tell you, lay things out in front of you on exactly what happened? Well, I, I will say this, as I said before, this, this, 
particular special committee of the board did eventually, you know, bring in someone that's supposed to do an investigation. Um, but that process has been still ongoing and, and they have not been as forthright as we would hope. This is an organization that was created for mission to support girls. And now you have the person, the founder of that mission that is disconnected from that. And I don't think that's fair. And it's been interesting. I have had so many other women who are in leadership roles, a lot of nonprofit roles, other BIPOC individuals who have had similar, if almost not exact situations and power struggles with their boards that ended in the same way. And I have been really focused on how can we change that, right? Because I think that the nonprofit board governance model is broken. So if you could wave a magic wand, go back to 2018, I think, when you set up this board, what would you do differently? I've thought about this a lot. And I think I would build this board quite differently. And I would also really explore these community board models that I've been reading about more. Because I think when nonprofit founders, especially grassroots ones like myself, when we get to the point where we want to legitimize the work, if you will, that's what I think of myself in 2018. Like we started 2012, 2011, really. By 2018, we were just, we were already doing work. We knew what we were doing. We were bringing on this formalized board as we became a non-fiscally sponsored organization. And I absolutely had a mindset that I want to hire the highest uh, profile executives that's can really help me legitimize the work, if you will. And there were many folks that were more rooted to community that I did not consider. I think that was a mistake because I think as an organization grows, especially a social justice community-driven one, you need folks that have that same mindset. Like how can we propose to be an organization that creates a safe space for young black girls we don't practice that within the organization, you, even with the leadership, you, if we're not practicing what we preach, our girls are looking at us. They see that. A challenge with the nonprofit model in and of itself is that it places such an onus on a founder or an executive director to be laser focused on fundraising. And, you know, so oftentimes you will build your board for folks that you think there are here to, to help you raise funds or to write a big check as opposed to supporting the work, the mission, and helping you grow as a leader. That is so vitally important in hindsight. Like you want people that can see all of you. So not not just to you know pat you on the back all the time, but to give you critical feedback, but also to be willing to help you grow because so during this time, you were on paid leave. Uh, what, do, what do you do every day? What's, your, what's, what's a typical day like for you right now? Well, actually, it's surprisingly, you know, my day is pretty busy. My weeks are pretty busy. I have definitely been doing a lot of speaking. I have been doing a lot of writing. I intend to certainly transition a lot of my experiences over the last 10 years into a book. Or I, at this point, I think I have about three books in me. <laughs> so I've been writing and journaling and also really focusing on what's next. Um, because for me as a founder, I, I certainly was already intending to build this next path post-BGC. So 
there's still things I want to do in this space. There's things that I want to do in Web3. There are things that I want to do to help Black women in leadership. There are things that I want to do on the funding side to fund leaders in their their initiatives. So my time is really focusing on building out what's next. BGC was something that I created, but that wasn't the mission, right? I think it's my mission to be an advocate for those who are marginalized and blocked from opportunities is to be a voice that says, oh, no, we have these people over here. Let's push this window out. Let's introduce them to this field. First, it was with BGC and Web2. Now it is with Web3. And I think that that is my path is to be an advocate, to say, hey, no, these individuals have talents. These people have interests. How do we give others a seat at the table of innovation? So it sounds like there could be a path where Black Girls Code becomes something you did, but not something you continue to do. Or do you see a future where you are always uh, leading Black Girls Code and this just becomes an expansion of that group's mission? Well, I feel that, you know, for me as a founder, there are other things for me to do. Like I am a founder at heart. I like to build. So I like to build things and see things grow. So I will always be a part of BGC in some way, but that not may not be running the day-to-day organization, but probably would be running my board of directors and being an advisor to this next generation of leaders who take it to the next decade and so forth. Um, but I don't see BGC going away and I don't see myself never being a part of it. I'll always be a part of it because I think it's a part of me. Kimberly, I'd love to end with career advice. What do you tell people who come to you and say, I don't know what to do with my career. I'm not sure what I care about. I'm not sure what I want to do. How do you help people understand how to just get on that path? Well, I think one of the most important things that anyone can do within their career path, especially if you're just getting started, but even beyond that is like learn to take chances and be less risk averse. I, you know, as I shared with you earlier in our conversation had I known then what I know now about, you know, technology, I, I probably would have not, you know, with the power engineering way, I probably would have went in South State Electronics and found a different career path. But I, I was risk averse very early in my career. I, I wouldn't take a two year assignment in some weird place because like I didn't want to live in those places. It's two years now, I'm like two years. I was, was a kid myself, like be less risk averse, you know, be willing to take a leap. Because if I didn't take a leap and use my 401k to start Black Girls Code, where would many of these, you know, 30, 20,000 girls who've been a part of our programs be now? They wouldn't have access to this, you know, maybe, but maybe not. But I had to take a risk to do that. And learning to do that as early in your career as possible. Like try all the things that you can possibly do to find your path. Um, Because sometimes the path will find you when you least expect it, but you got to take a risk, step out there. And then I would say the value of building your community. One of the things I can tell you that has gotten me through this last four months was my community. Like if it wasn't for my community, my Vanderbilt community, like went to Vanderbilt 20 plus years ago, that community has been behind me 110%. My community of other um, leaders in the field of technology and those folks that really wrap their arms around me and say, hey, how can I support you? How can I help you? It was that community that I built, you know, 10, 20 years. That is how I have made it to where I can get up every morning and still have this conversation with you. 
And I feel that like we all need that, you know, the value and power of community cannot be denied. Like none of us is walking this walk alone. Find that community and give into the community so that like when you in these places and these challenging times, like, you know, I experienced the community was there and that that community will push you through. That was Kimberly Bryant. To dive deeper into this conversation, check out my newsletter on LinkedIn. It's also called This Is Working. I really thought it was impressive how candid Kimberly was with me and with our This Is Working community about her personal journey, about the creation and growth of Black Girls Code, and frankly, about the struggles in continuing to grow it. Kimberly is a powerhouse in the realm of opportunity creation, and I can't wait to see what comes next for her. If this episode resonated with you, please post about it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you're having conversations with your community. And be sure to tag me in. I love hearing what you're saying, good and bad. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Stephen Valdivia, Victoria Taylor, and Candace Weiner. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our head of news production. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.